And our second reading this morning comes to the comes from the letter to the Philippians written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison, we think in Rome. At the end of his life, he wrote to that outpost, that Roman colony in the Greek, what is now Greece, the city of Philippi, and we'll be reading from the 10th verse of the third chapter through the first verse of the fourth chapter. Listen now to what the Spirit is saying to you and to the church this morning. I want, Christ, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us then who are mature be of the same mind, and if you think differently about anything, this too God will reveal to you. Only let us hold fast to what we have attained. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ, I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction. Their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. May the meditations of our hearts together this morning upon your word to us, O God, be acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It is a time of war, unprecedented in many of our lives. It is a time where people are angry and polarized. There are angry restrictive laws attempting to be passed around the country, around the world, to restrict freedoms, it seems. There is a pandemic lingering, and its effect still lingers with all of us, impacts all of us. And Paul says, in the midst of all this, to us, as he said to the Philippians 2,000 years ago, stand firm. And why? Because, Paul reminds us, stand firm because your citizenship is in heaven. And citizenship means something. Being an American citizen means something. It still does. In January of 1985, I was living and studying in what was then West Berlin, Germany. 
And for those of you too young to remember, the Soviet Union still dominated all of Eastern Europe back in those days, including East Germany. And West Berlin, which was kind of an island in East Germany, was surrounded by a wall, which we knew as the, appropriately enough, Berlin Wall. To get into East Berlin, the other half of the city, or in East Germany at all, you had to wait on a long line and go through multiple unpleasant checkpoints with grim trench coat, machine gun wearing guards and big dogs. And you had to go through what was called a checkpoint. There were two in Berlin when I lived there. Checkpoint Charlie, very famous one on the surface and then underground at a subway stop, the U-Bahn stop, Friedrichstrasse, Friedrich, Fred, Frederick Street. When you went into East Berlin, even as an American citizen, you were allowed certain freedoms, but you had to be out by midnight, sort of a Cinderella thing happening. But it was what, what the consequences of not getting out by midnight were worse than your carriage turning into a pumpkin. You had to deal with the Stasi, the East German police. You didn't want to mess with those guys. But one evening, I, as we often did, I went into East Berlin to go to a play with friends at the Brecht Theater, the Bertrand Brecht Theater in East Berlin, which is an amazing place even then during the Cold War. Uh, and the play ended about 11.30. And I had a, we all had a half an hour to get back to the Friedrichstrasse checkpoint to get back into the west, the west, west side of the Berlin Wall into West Berlin where the lights were bright and capitalism reigned supreme and we were safe. But I thought, because I was a not-too-bright 22-year-old, 21-year-old uh, kid, I thought, hey, I'm an American citizen. I have a half an hour. I'm going to use my freedom for this half hour. So I dawdled on the wrong side of the wall. I took my time. I walked slowly down an empty street to the east side of the Brandenburg Gate. Nowadays, the whole gate is open. You can walk on both sides, but not back in those days. There were pillboxes, guys with guns in there, waiting for you to walk into no man's land underneath or too close to the wall. And then I decided, you know, it's getting a little bit closer to midnight. I should wander back to the checkpoint to get out of here. And as I was walking through these deserted streets where all the embassies were and still are, uh, all of a sudden I hear these screeching of tires, and around a corner came an East German police jeep coming full speed right at me. And as I was walking toward the checkpoint, getting pretty close, the jeep pulled right up on the sidewalk in front of me and stopped me. There was nobody else around. It's about 11.50 at night. I had about 10 minutes, maybe nine minutes at that point. The guy gets out with his gun there, and he demanded to see my ID. Papira, bitte, show me your papers, which I did. I flashed my American passport. I flashed my Ausweis, my license to live in West Berlin. And he took his sweet time reading it. He knew he couldn't really get me, but he could mess with me. And I started sweating. And I got nervous. And he made me wait. And finally, he let me go. Alles in Ordnung, everything's okay. And I took off running. And he just laughed and watched me run. And I made it through the checkpoint with about 45 seconds to spare. Being a citizen of somewhere has its perks. Don't misuse it, because it also has its responsibilities. I probably could have represented America a little bit better that night. Paul says we are citizens of heaven. When I was growing up in the more Baptist church world, uh, wherever we lived, mostly in the South and in the West, I was taught 
in church that being a citizen of heaven means you can't wait to punch your ticket to get off this broken, sinful planet, this imperfect world, and you get beamed up to a better place. Beam me up, Scotty. Get me out of here. Like the first time I ever set foot in Times Square visiting my friend about mid-80s, same, same time. I was excited to go, but when I got there, my, I was overwhelmed, sensory over, overwhelming. All the lights, all the people, all the people asking me for stuff, money, everything. It was the mid-80s, a little bit less sanitary time than it is today in Times Square. Get me out of here. But that's not what Paul means when he says citizen of heaven in this text from Philippians. It's a misreading, really, that we are just waiting here on earth until we have a chance to go to some place called heaven. That's not what he means at all. Paul knows that the Philippian Christians, just 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, are suffering. They are being persecuted. They're living in a crazy uh, cosmopolitan world in a colonial outpost of the Roman Empire. There are dangers on the frontier in Philippi, the city of Philippi. There are barbarians literally, literally at the gate sometimes. There are still the political intrigues and machinations of the Roman Empire back in Rome, which filter out into the provinces, into the colonial holdings. And for this new faith, where people place Jesus Christ above all other authorities, there was the constant threat of the cult of Caesar, which was everywhere. To believe in Jesus Christ, to be part of the church, you had to watch your back as well as have eyes in the front because people could always turn you in. They could always identify you as someone who did not place Caesar above all else. You had to do what others didn't. You had to meet in secret. You had to face what Paul calls enemies of the cross, outside of the church, but also inside, because in those early days, there were people who, did, who denied the fact that being a follower of Jesus means that there will be challenge. There is going to be suffering you have to take up your cross, as Christ said, and follow me. You have to let go of and give up certain things that matter in your life because you can't put them above the Lord and Savior who promises you abundant life today. Paul wrote Philippians somewhere around 50, about 20 years after the death of Jesus. But 100 years before he wrote this letter, in the Battle of Philippi, 42 BCE, the Roman generals Antony and Octavian, who later would become Augustus Caesar, defeated the two guys who assassinated Julius Caesar, Brutus and Cassius, at this place called Philippi. In this battle of, for power struggle within the Roman Empire. And after that battle, after Antony and Octavian, who later would become Caesar himself, defeated Brutus and Cassius, the soldiers were suddenly relieved of their military duties. They were suddenly retired. And they faced a problem. They couldn't really go back to Rome by this time. Rome was already overcrowded, dirty. There wasn't enough employment for all the soldiers to return. So the soldiers who were left were tasked to colonize Philippi, this formerly Greek town, maybe small city, and to make a Roman colony out on the frontier, a beautiful place, and soon became a prosperous place because after it was colonized, Rome started sending Italians to Philippi to grow crops, become business people, to create a city, a thriving metropolis. As citizens 
of Rome on the frontier. And if you think about it, somebody living in Philippi who was a citizen of Rome would not say, we are citizens of Rome, which means we want to go to Rome and live there. Not at all. Just as Paul said, we are citizens of heaven. He doesn't mean that we want to go there now. It means that we are bringing the culture and the values, the standards, and the vision and dreams of heaven into this place, just as Roman citizens brought the values and the culture and the laws of Rome to Philippi, to this outpost, to expand Roman influence in a strange and hostile place. And Paul is telling the church 2,000 years ago and today that our purpose as a body of Christ, as a community of Christians, is to bring the love and justice and peace of Christ into this place and this time, this broken, hostile, angry, warlike world. Not to simply step back, not take part, and wait for a better day and a better place for ourselves. To be a citizen of heaven is to expand the influence and the witness to God's love. In times of upheaval, violence, hopelessness, despair, illness, we bring that love, that witness, as citizens of heaven, to Philippi, to Montclair, to Clifton, to New York, to wherever we happen to be. How do you do this? How do I live as a citizen of heaven when I'm not perfect, when I make mistakes, when I have my doubts at times, when I have my, my remorse, my distraction? Well, Paul says the way that we can be citizens in troubled times here in our text this morning, the way we can find support and the inspiration and the courage to be citizens of heaven, to be ambassadors of love and peace and justice and forgiveness and reconciliation, is, did you see it in the text, to observe those who live according to the example you have seen in us. That's part of what it means to be a church. We get to be around other people and observe and watch and get to know them. It's one of the really wonderful, incredible miracles of a Christian family. It's why we need each other as a church. We can't be citizens of heaven on our own. We need to be in a community of faith. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there I am also. Now, I have met citizens of heaven in all four of my congregations as a pastor and the churches I knew it before, and I knew before. And sometimes citizens of heaven are kind of what you expect. They sort of radiate, you know, glory. They kind of shine. They always know how to pray. They're always up in front. They're the first people to sign up to serve the homeless or the hungry. They teach Sunday school. Um, they're wonderful at singing, preaching, praying. And sometimes they're kind of low-key. They're not very good at talking about God at all. They're just somehow they carry in them the presence of the Holy Spirit. You can feel it when you're around them. Sometimes citizens of heaven are quite conscious of who they are in the midst of the rest of us, and sometimes they don't know. I know because I can see them. But somehow, whether they know it or don't, whether they're loud or quiet, a citizen of heaven brings the love and justice and peace of God's presence with us, which we call Jesus Christ, into our midst. It really is a miracle. You can think about people that you know like that. Paul says, observe those who live according to the example you have in us. That's how you can be a citizen of heaven. That's how you're going to be able to stand firm, no matter what's coming at you. I want to tell you about a citizen of heaven in my last congregation, just down the, down the parkway 
about 14 exits. Uh, Her name was Virginia Waters. Virginia was an elder in the church at the time uh, when I was there. She was probably in her early 50s, a neighbor of ours, of mine and Sarah and our little children. Uh, Virginia was very East Coast Presbyterian, very reserved, not a lot of God talk. She just led by example. Not comfortable praying, but always there, always very faithful. She was a, and is a psychologist by profession, um, had a thriving therapy practice in Cranford and in New York City. Uh, But one of the things I really remember about Virginia I want to share with you is that she founded a grief support group in that church right before I got there as their pastor in 2002 because my predecessor at the age of 51 had died suddenly and tragically of a heart attack. And people were mourning. And his death reminded people and evoked in them their own losses, and the community was really in a tough place. So Virginia founded this grief group, which actually had the former pastor's wife in it. She's still in it today. And Virginia Waters, who was a very busy person with children herself, designed the group, led the group, invited folks who were coming to the church and in the community to join the group, scheduled all the speakers, never missed a meeting, And while she was doing all that, as I said, she was working, she was married, and she had two children who were just out of high school and into elite colleges in the Northeast. But in one stretch of four years, after I'd been in the church there in Cranford a few years myself, in one stretch of four years, Virginia lost her 23-year-old son to an overdose. Her husband, Sidney, also a doctor, Pancreatic cancer was gone within four months and then lost a 21-year-old daughter about nine months after that to suicide. And you know, even through all her losses, Virginia never missed a grief group, not one. She still got there early. She still made the coffee. She still ran copies for the flyers on the copy machine. She still showed others racked with grief like she was the love of Christ. She showed them that they were not alone. She showed them by her commitment, as Paul says today, that heaven isn't somewhere we go, somewhere we try to earn our way into, something we wait for. Heaven is a relationship, a reality with God right now. And Virginia decided to live as a citizen of heaven, even though she was facing hell. She did that because of her relationship with God through Christ. God had never let her go, and she lived like it was true. Her personal experience of God's love and presence yesterday and today led Virginia to expect that love from God tomorrow. That's all it means to be a citizen of heaven, I think. You know, one of the perks of a Roman colony like Philippi in the first century out there in the middle of nowhere, far from the capital, was that if the barbarians really did show up at the gate, if there were rebellions within or marauders from without, a Roman citizen could always legitimately and lawfully call upon the emperor himself to come with his legions and solve the problem, remove the threat, defeat the enemy. The emperor, the Caesar, was called indeed savior and rescuer, was worshipped in the cult of Caesar in Rome at that time. That's what the Christians were up against as they proposed and brought forth another savior, 
a savior who was not based on strength, but on vulnerability and on self-sacrifice and on love. And Paul is playing on this right of citizenship as he talks about our citizenship in heaven because we have a right to expect a savior too. But ours comes from God and is this person, this kind, merciful, forgiving, self-giving savior, Jesus of Nazareth. And that is our source of hope, our source of confidence and trust because as Virginia knew, we've been loved, we've been loved before, we're gonna be loved again even when we can't figure out how and we can't figure out way, even when things are, are tough. Jesus promises to come to us as he has come to you and to me in the past. Jesus Christ is simply God's self-expression. When we feel God, hear God, sense God, it's Christ, the word being spoken to us, coming to us, being offered to us in love and in grace, whether we deserve it or not. The preacher King Duncan once said, the truth is our motivation, that truth that Jesus will come to us is our motivation to stand firm no matter what the world or life is throwing at us. The truth transforms our waiting, our worshiping, our serving into a time of purposeful, hopeful, and joyful living. The fact that God is coming, not someday, but today, to you, to me, to us, in ways we hope for and in ways we're not expecting. We have to live with that hope, with that expectation as citizens of heaven. In June of 1965, six teenage boys from the Pacific island of Tonga skipped school to go sailing, which they often did, but they got caught in a storm this day and were shipwrecked a long way from the island of Tonga uh, on an uncharted island. It was like Gilligan's Island, I guess, but real, and there were no suitcases or trunks with full you know, changes of clothes like Lovey Hathaway had. You have to be a certain age to get that joke. Over a year later, these six teenage boys were there on that island when a fishing boat sailing nearby saw a fire and discovered them there. Their families back home had already had funerals for them. They'd already given up hope. How did they survive? Well, this story didn't turn into a Lord of the Flies kind of story or a Yellow Jackets, if you're up on that series these days. These boys did something much more hopeful and much more real. They, they set up a system of work and rules to govern their days. Each day started and ended with prayer and singing. They hollowed out tree trunks to catch rainwater. They foraged for food. They planted a vegetable garden. They created their own recreation area with a badminton court and homemade island-made weights. They gathered wood for a fire and set up a schedule so that it burned 24-7 the fire never went out, and that fire eventually saved their lives. These boys, these six boys from Tonga, were determined to work together, to support each other, learn from one another, and keep the faith until the day that they were rescued. They never changed. They never changed who they were to each other and for each other because of that shared expectation, that firm belief that they would be rescued. That is how citizens of heaven stand firm. We keep our eyes on the prize we stay together, learn from each other, support each other, forgive one another, celebrate each other, and expect God somehow, some way to find us, each one of us, all of us, to reestablish relationship again and again and again 
so that the gifts of our citizenship can drive us forward into abundant life. Remember, your citizenship is in heaven, but it looks just like your regular life. Hear what N.T. Wright, the great New Testament scholar, says in his book, Surprised by Hope, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church. Wright says, What you do in the Lord is not in vain. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, you are accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of God's creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures, and of course, every prayer of yours, all spirit-led teaching and caring, every deed that spreads the gospel of love, builds up the church. Everything you do builds up the church and embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this, Wright says, will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God is making right now and which one day, someday, will be all in all. Thanks be to God that we can stand firm with our eyes on the prize. Amen.